HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. My name is Samantha Garner, and I'm from Boston, Massachusetts. I'm a Cheeselandian because I take cheese seriously, just like they do in Wisconsin. Go to Cheeselandia.com to learn more, and if it's for you, sign up. This week on Meet and 3, we dive into the science behind munchies, the history of coca, the therapeutic powers of psychedelics, and mushroom-infused recipes. One of the biggest questions we get asked a lot is, does heat degrade psilocybin? The coca leaf was used as a sacred plant. So as a plant that could communicate human beings with gods or mother nature. What you can start to appreciate here is that cannabis is activating and hijacking the system throughout the body. Tune in to Meat and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you get your podcasts. Diversification in business can solve many of the struggles restaurant groups face. Varying outlets limit the risk attributable to one format. They solve the ever-changing creative needs of the creator, and they can essentially create a vertically integrated supply chain. Focus is a theme we've carried across the podcast in nearly every episode, and it often comes up in reference to straying from your lane. So how do you retain focus and diversify successfully? Our guest today is Andrew Tarlow, a prolific Brooklyn restaurateur and the founder of the Marlowe Collective. Andrew has been nourishing people at Diner for more than 20 years and Marlowe and Sons for over 15. And he still manages to create places that always feel timeless and relevant while also having a myriad other businesses like a bakery, a wine store, a butcher shop, just to name a few. Um, we are super fans of your establishments, and we're really excited to chat with you today and learn from you. Thank you for being here. Welcome. Yeah, thank you. Excited to be here. Awesome. Um, so we live, I think you know this, we live like two blocks from Diner and Marlo and Marlo and Daughters. And um, it's fun. We, tried to go, we tried to go for brunch this weekend, and it was an hour and a half wait at noon on a Saturday that was 50 degrees and like a little dreary. How do you, how do you do that after 20 years? I mean, I don't know. That That's just maybe good luck. <laughs> I appreciate uh, I mean, you. I, I, you know, yeah. I mean, I guess to be serious, obviously, you know, the restaurant, at least diner has been part of that community for 20 plus years. And it is, you know, super 
heartwarming to see that the community is still coming out for it, especially during these times. That's actually what we really need to sustain ourselves through this whole process. It's interesting too, though, because I'm sure you could tell us more, but um, Williamsburg, Brooklyn is probably uh, a completely different city than it was 20 years ago. And, and, the, and that it's still um, going so well and even getting better every year, I assume. Yeah, I mean, obviously things have changed dramatically over the last 22 years here. And, you know, to be honest, there's been ups and downs in terms of how the neighborhoods changed and morphed, you know, in a funny way. I think one of maybe the highlights, you know, or one of the, you know, better parts of this situation we're in now, you know, in the pandemic is that the community has come together again and it's supporting their local businesses. I feel that for sure, especially in Williamsburg. I, you know, I feel like much more so than last year. I feel like it's very community focused and, 100%. you know. Yeah, I think the times that Williamsburg has, or we have struggled is when the neighborhood starts to feel transient and people are really just like living here for a year and then moving on or like they're just trying this out like as if it's some kind of TV show. <laughs> for 12 months and then we're going to be done. I think that's when it becomes a little problematic for us. Williamsburg as the Truman Show. I mean, I love it. Um, yeah, no, that's, that's, it's interesting. And, you know, I think what is so amazing about what you've created is that you have this very diverse portfolio. It's like, you don't just have restaurants, but you also have, you know, a, a nose to tail butcher shop and a bakery and the wine store. I'm curious, was this like always your vision or is this something that sort of has evolved over, over time? Um, well, you know, what's funny is that I, um, I was looking at these old, I was, I had a computer die recently and another computer died today, but recently I was looking at old, um, notes to myself about like where I wanted the businesses to be or things that I was interested in and definitely a wine store and a bakery were on that list ages ago. And I wasn't really following it. These things have just, I don't want to say they just happened because obviously I wrote it down at some point, but there wasn't a real plan to get there because there was a lot of things in that list that haven't come to fruition yet. So. You say uh, yet, what is, uh, what else is on the list that you pulled up? I mean, I want to make a movie. <laughs> <laughs> is it about Brooklyn? No, but it's about food. Okay. I want to make a food movie. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, those kind of lists are more just like for me to, you know, put everything out there to see what might stick or what might not. I mean, most of what has happened, you know, even the Diner Journal, you know, having a food magazine was a outcropping of like staff working here who really wanted another creative outlet and wanted a different way of doing things. So like, you know, the bakery came out of staff situations, the butcher shop came out of staff situations and a little bit the wine store. So it's like those things kind of have to come organically, at least for me, inside the businesses first before going out to go find it. What made you feel comfortable to, to go into, you know, essentially a, a very different business model from restaurants? 
I don't know that it was a comfort. I think it's just probably more naive. <laughs> <laughs> Leaping while kind of looking. Yeah, or just like, you know, I just sort of following following the crumbs a little bit. Yeah, like I didn't realize the bakery would be so much of a manufacturing business. But, you know, I want to say, though, the core of all the businesses are the same in that we are an employee-driven business and we are taking care of our employees first and foremost. So in that capacity, a lot of the ethos that we have learned by being reflective in restaurant work has really been able to translate to other businesses. Um, you know, and I, I'm not, I wouldn't overemphasize my confidence in it, but I do feel like some of the cultural aspects that we have learned over the years could probably be applied if people really wanted to in, you know, I mean, in multiple businesses, I would think. I don't think there's a, I don't think there's a business that it couldn't be applied to, I guess is what I'm saying. I don't, I don't necessarily need to be, I, know I might not want to run any of those businesses or be a part of it, but. So basically the businesses sort of stem out of the culture that you, that you guys have created with having this employee centric business model. Yeah, exactly. Did you ever think about doing like a second Marlowe or, or a second, I mean, I think obviously the wine store or the She-Wolf is maybe more expandable in that sense, but have you thought yeah. about that rather than just a new concept? Uh, I mean, I've joked with myself or with my staff about it that it'd be a lot easier so I wouldn't rule it out, but I'm not really much of someone who likes to copy. It's not as fun. It's not as fun. So, yeah. but I do think, I do think like if opportunity came, I think there are permutations of these businesses. You know, I would say Achilles Heel is a kind of a permutation of what Marlon Sons was when we first opened without having the store or coffee part. Um, and I say before pandemic, I think it was definitely living up to like what Marlowe was, you know, 14 years ago at nighttime at least. So in some ways, you know, these ideas are just permutations of each other. Do they help support each other in different ways? Like are, you know, are you able to get a better margin because you have this wine store and you're making all your own bread at She Wolf and supplying the restaurants and then other you know, other restaurants around the city, how, do, how does that whole ecosystem feed itself? I mean, mainly the ecosystem feeds itself in the capacity that if we have losses somewhere or someone's struggling, I can buoy them up with the other businesses. Um, certainly, you know, like boring stuff, like negotiating credit card rates and like maybe insurance, we probably have some, you know, better success by owning multiple businesses. But in essence, the, all the businesses are, own, are owned by me, but they're all independently, they're all independent, right? So like Diner is still a customer of She Wolf Bakery and we pay a wholesale rate for that bread that we buy from them. But you are right that it really helped She Wolf get off the ground because automatically we knew we had X amount of bread sales walking in day one because we knew what all the businesses were spending on bread. Right. Right. So like if I was to start roasting coffee, I know how much coffee I automatically buy at Marlon Sons. So I know that I could at least get that amount of sales. So there is a lot of help in that capacity. Yeah. You're basically like creating new businesses based on data that you have from running five other restaurants for the past 
Exactly. You know, X amount of time. It's really smart. So is there a coffee company coming? Is this like a little, are we I mean, getting to- coffee was definitely has been on that list, was on the on list the- with the wine store and the movie for sure. Uh-huh. But you know, I haven't, I haven't gotten there yet. Haven't gotten there yet. You still got time. Okay. Um, I love it. So, okay. So we have coffee and a movie that's still to come. Um, so you mentioned <laughs> like I'm, I'm, I think by the end of the conversation, we'll have this list. will keep growing. I'm excited to see. Well, I saw somewhere well, about a a farm restaurant, yeah. perhaps. I've always been interested in that for sure. I think um, you know we buy all our food from farmers. I mean, everybody does, but we know most of the farmers, or say eighty percent of the people who grow our food. So I would, you know, I think it would be great to connect those dots in a way that was very approachable and not a high-end situation, also not maybe fast casual. So yeah, I would love to uh, have a small restaurant on a farm. Do you feel like this current time is, is, is ripe with opportunity in some ways? Uh, yeah. I mean, I would, you know, I think I could argue that every time has some version of opportunity it just depends on what you want to do. But yeah, I think, you know, there's definitely opportunities for sure. Um, I mean, when you are, it's difficult when you, I mean, not that everyone doesn't care about their employees, but when you are so close knit in this way, managing people's health crises at the same time while trying to have a business is a challenging prospect as you can, as you know, obviously, but I think that's really where the crux of these problems are now for growing. What have you guys done since I know that you are so employee focused? What have you guys done differently or or that's working with your team by keeping them safe and and um, insured and all those things during the pandemic? Yeah, I mean, one, obviously being highly communicative and really talking about all the steps we are planning on taking and what we're thinking about doing and giving our staff the time to give us feedback and say that feels too much or that feels too little, like have people we let in the door and all those components. Um, you know, all the basic cleaning schedules, you know, HVAC, um, the getting the whole place sprayed with some kind of antibacterial COVID spray that happens once a month. Um, you know, a real system for what happens, all the what ifs if people get sick and what we're going to do and really being transparent about what those plans are. And, you know, we have been also working on this plan, which is in the infancy, we just started this week is getting free testing, um, the possibility of getting free mobile testing vans to show up at the restaurant once a week so that one, the staff can get tested, but also anyone in the community can get tested for free and get results within two days. That's great. And the idea of like using the restaurant as like a, a focal point or a kiosk for testing just to get more data and get people to feel more comfortable with where they are. You know? how, do you, how do you manage to cover those sorts of fees? If I can be frank, when you're, I mean, the restaurant businesses are not known for their crazy yeah. profit margins. So how do you... Yeah. We're hoping that they would get billed to the insurance or get put billed by the um, by the person who's running the van. Really, the van is just using the restaurant in essence as 
seeing it as like the center of the community and that's where they need to get the testing to versus this idea that you're in some clinic on Atlantic Avenue, right? Like how do you actually get to where the people are? Yeah, we've been, I mean, we get tested like once a month and it, it, it's like we're going to like some- On Atlantic Avenue. Avenue. <laughs> yeah, on Atlantic Avenue, right? And the far reaches, it is, it's true. Yeah. It's like not so where you can go to walk two blocks and then you can go have your brunch. Yeah, I love it. Yeah. And what about all these other, so like all these other things are expensive too, like the spraying. And I have to say, like, so we've been to diner several times since the pandemic has started and it does feel very safe. Everybody's taking temperatures and you guys, you know, they're really thoughtful about contact tracing and getting people's information. Um, yeah. And I think actually Nate Adler from Gertie was telling you that you guys were spraying the tables with some like crazy stuff that traps bacteria. Is that, yeah. am, I, am I explaining this correctly? Yeah, basically it's, I'm going to say, I'm going to botch it too, but it's basically like a microbial spray that has in the, I guess in nano size has spikes on it so uh -huh. that viruses can't really stick to it. And then when you use the spray attached to that um, product, it really wipes it perfectly clear. Supposedly it's what they use in hospitals traditionally already. Like it's not new technology. It's just public has never really used it. And it's publicly accessible, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. So Do you it, remember that? And it wears out in about one month. So we, we get the whole place sprayed once a month. A company comes and sprays this, does this for you. Yep. It's not like a can you buy from Amazon. No, no. Electrostatic <laughs> spray. And I wish we were on a, uh, I wish I could show you a picture of what the gun looks like because it's really cool. Well, you can send, like, you can uh, send it, send us pictures after this and we'll post them when we post this episode. Yeah, it's great. It's great information to share. Like if, um, I mean, Marvel Universe couldn't make a, <laughs> a gun. I have like Ghostbusters in my head for some reason. Yeah, I'm it's like, like that. It's basically it's, like that. Yeah. It's like people in like hazmat suits with the packs on just like spraying down the whole restaurant. Yeah. A win win. Well, that feels a little bit more like end of the world. This is more goofy. <laughs> definitely more like your kid's nerf gun somehow it saves you from covid so, uh, like it probably doesn't need to be in this pack but they do it just to just to have fun with it yeah i'm so dead it's like halloween costume for next year and this is all over um and so and so you're doing that at all the restaurants and it's like the bakeries and everything yeah and there's a real spots. I mean, we at the bakery we do more of the high test spots like the doorknobs and the things that people are actively touching on a daily basis. We don't need to spray all the surfaces that we use there, um, but we are doing all the points that we touch. I mean, the bakery is unique in that they have 15 employees and they don't really have outside people coming in and out of that place. So. It's really about keeping that 15 people safe. There's not like a bunch of people touching everything. All, you know what I mean? Yeah. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. My name is Samantha Garner and I'm from Boston, Massachusetts. I'm a cheese landian because I take cheese seriously, just like they do in Wisconsin. Cheeselandia is a community for loud and proud cheese lovers brought to life by Wisconsin Cheese. I know that I can always cook amazing food with their cheese, and it's even good enough just to snack on. 
As a Cheeselandia member, I know there is always a supportive community behind me who always gets as excited as I do about cheese. Go to Cheeselandia.com to learn more, and if it's for you, sign up. Check us out on Instagram at Cheeselandia. Hello, this is Dana Cowan, and I'm the host of Speaking Broadly on Heritage Radio Network. Each week, I interview extraordinary women in the world of food and wine. And I've expanded this season to create Giving Broadly, a website devoted to amazing products by extraordinary women entrepreneurs. Check it out for great gifts and ways to amp up your cooking this season. That's givingbroadly.com. You talk a lot about like your employees and I know, you know, like in past interviews that I've read from you and I know that you like always have this, as you mentioned earlier, this employee centric company culture. As you continue to scale, how do you retain that and how do you, how do you grow that? Yeah. I mean, it's been a challenge, you know, I have to say, I think, um, I mean, as a company, I'm a little smaller now that I'm not at the hotel. So at the peak there, was it was challenging we had two hr departments one just solely dedicated to the hotel and one for obviously my other businesses um but it's something that like i wouldn't grow unless i thought i could maintain it i mean that's part of like like maybe my checklist of like not opening too many things too fast and also not having too many things Mm -hmm. like i might not get to the coffee roaster because it might not fit culturally in that niche. I mean, another one, another way is also we end up splitting. Like I probably wouldn't open the coffee restaurant unless someone was super passionate about roasting coffee inside of this business or someone that I've worked with in the past who culturally know what the employee norms are supposed to be. Right. So in the end, we're actually just like, splitting dna we're not retraining it from the ground up mm-hmm. and is that because you've also retained some of your talent for like 10 plus years as well and had people come back to your company is that part of why do you grow or is that do you think that's part of why that you grow people like as you said from the dna i mean i hope so i think you know we work i work hard and think about a lot how to take care of people and we first and foremost think about how to take care of ourselves and then the second we think about how to take care of our guests. So it's like, I think when you have that really in your day-to-day basis, people can feel it and see it. And when they go other places, they recognize it's not exactly the same. You know? How do you decide, you know, when somebody brings you an idea of something they're passionate about that for expansion, how do you decide if it's a good fit for, for you, right? Or have there been projects where somebody came along and said, I want to do X, Y, Z, and you just felt like that wasn't something that, that you would tackle or that would work well under the Marlowe umbrella? Or, I mean, actually, you know, internal staff have not really um, come up with ideas. I think it's one of the things that maybe is lacking here in a funny way. It, it sounds... It, the way I'm painting is, is if someone has this idea and then they want to do it, it's more that like someone is passionate about something. Like we hired Austin to be the lead baker at She-Wolf, but he was an employee at Romans. And then people started liking the bread and then we started growing the business together. But, you know, I definitely went and found the space and we did all that research together, but it, he didn't come to me and said, Hey, I really want to own a bakery. 
that does X amount of loaves a year. Right. Right. He's he's been along for that story, and he he definitely has a lot of control over that business, and kind of can say where the pinch points are, where the you know we don't need to grow it any bigger because of where he's at. Right. So. In a long-winded story, I think it would be great if people were coming with ideas. I think the only things I've really said no to is ex-employees who have wanted to open their own businesses and ask if I would like to invest. Right. That's probably the only stuff that I've said no to. But it's... Um, but yeah, I think if someone came to me with an idea, I mean, if it was right, I mean, obviously we have some level of expertise in knowing how to assess real estate and find good deals there at times, you know, it might take a little while. And we definitely have the skill set of like paying the bills and running the HR and running the business of it. So there is infrastructure built into these businesses that we can, we could take on new ideas if they were there. Yeah. I mean, I think so many times people, you know, it's like what you're hitting home on for me is that when you own a restaurant, you're really in the, you're like, you're in the employee business. Like the businesses are made up of these employees and it's how you grow. I mean, and I mean, a thousand percent. I mean, honestly, the largest, the thing we spend our most money on is our employees. Mm-hmm. That's the, it's cost more than the food that we buy. I mean, we're, you know, we technically say we're in the food business, but we're really in the employee business. A hundred, a hundred percent. Yeah. So, and I know you've been, you know, you were a champion, an early champion of the gratuity free movement, trying to like equalize that wages. And obviously diners haven't really accepted the full cost of what it takes to run a business and run that model or what it costs really to eat out. So, you know, how, and I know you're like, obviously trying, how do you try to continue to sort of move that movement forward and close these wage gaps, especially in this time of COVID where, you know, the model shifting people are yep. people out of work and all those kind of things. Yeah, I mean, it's been a real struggle. I mean, we are, you know, we're still kind of fighting for the, the idea of one rate of pay for all employees and removing the barrier between the tips going to all the staff is 80, 20 rule. I think if we can get that 80-20 rule removed, then we can actually raise the, we can actually share in the day of service, you know, share the tips for that day to everybody who's working there besides managers and um, which is something that we were actively doing pre-COVID still. Um, And anytime, you know, we can get in front of a New York state legislator or have access to Cuomo or anybody who makes these kind of decisions or who would vote on it, we are definitely actively talking about removing that 80-20 rule. Can you just explain the 80-20 rule to our listeners just in case? Because I know- yeah. So 80% of the work has to be tip facing. So, so effectively, if you are a line cook or a dishwasher, obviously you're an integral part of the service that night to get the food to the table but the tip can't get there because this 80-20 rule. It basically states that you have to be guest facing 80% of the time to accept the tip. That's the threshold that the state has given us. Mm-hmm. So really only bartenders and waitstaff and or 
busters can get the can share in the tip pool that night. And so if everyone's working harder on a Saturday night, you're still getting paid an hourly rate in the kitchen and everyone's making a big bonus for that night working in the front of the house. Mm-hmm. And it's all because of the 80-20 rule. What needs to happen to make that, to make legislators, does there need to be a, we need a raise? And we need some legislation to wake up. Right. Basically, you know, it, for them, it's a no harm, no foul. It doesn't cost them any money. And, the, you know, the kitchen, the kitchen employees who are really the ones who are getting short staffed, short shifted on this thing or short wage, however you want to say it, is, are not really, you know, aren't a loud enough voice to really push the needle. Mm-hmm. Would the tips uh, minimum wage need to be raised? Yeah, and you'd go from $10 to basic minimum. Do we leave here? Wage of $15 an hour. So yeah, they have their costs a little bit. In the end, you know, you have a workforce, you know, in the restaurant at least, who are all, you know, granted, we would still assume that front of the house employees are going to make a little bit more hourly than a line cook. We're not necessarily going to even it percent but at least we can kind of close the gap by a lot. The gap right. is huge right now. Way too big. And do you feel like that's a sentiment that's shared with all employees across, across the board, at least in, within your organizations? I mean, I do. I think, you know, I think restaurant owners all believe that the gap is too big. It doesn't mean that they're willing to do anything about it or, you know, that it's worth anyone's energy to fix it. I mean, we spent like four years and I can't even tell you how much time forget about the money part, trying to like remove tips and solve this problem that way, because we didn't think the 80, 20 rule would ever go away. And, you know, in the end I couldn't solve it. And I really thought we could. What kind of things were you guys doing to, to try and solve it up against the 80, 20 rule? I mean, by removing tips with the 80, 20 rule goes away. Right. We are paying everyone hourly. And so then menu prices went up. I assume. Yeah. So this was a way of trying to skirt was a solution to the problem that we had always seen that we've been, we always were, we have since day one, literally day one have been struggling with this issue. And this is 22 years, Mm -hmm. right? We've, We've understood the inequities of this business for a really long time and have had very little tools until, you know, we tried to remove tips and really went for it um, to make the changes that we think are necessary. Do you, you know, obviously like diners have to buy in too. I mean, I think that was part of the reason why people ended up going back and into a gratuity model is because the food prices became so expensive that diners couldn't wrap their heads around a $25 hamburger or whatever. What, what do you think, you know, how does that change if the 80-20 rule is removed and what what do we need to do to communicate to guests? I mean, it doesn't change anything. It just means that the if your burger is 20 bucks and you left the $5 as a tip and you're fine with that mouth, which is basically what the mouth is, mm-hmm. then the $5 is just being proportioned, you know, maybe 70% of that would be to the front of the house and 30% would be to the back of the house, right? Like, because the back of the house are getting paid above minimum wage. It's not like they're getting paid $15. So, you know, it would be, there would be some, there'd be some 
you know, adjustment to how much of the tip would go to the distribution of that tip. But in the end of the day, most diners, most people eating out believe their tip is being shared with everybody in the restaurant besides ownership, right? Most people don't believe that the don't know the money's only going to those three people. Yeah, I never even thought about it like that just because I think we're so familiar with the industry that I didn't you, think about it. But also like, you know, again, the math of the $25, again, remember this is also fake math because right. all we were doing was saying, this is the full cost, it's $25. Right now you come in, you're gonna have a $20 hamburger and you're probably gonna leave six or seven dollars because you feel bad for everyone because of COVID. Right. So really the burger costs $28. You guys had all given me the $28. I could have distributed that really equally and really fairly to all the people who are most in need of my business. I'm right. best suited to know who needs the money and who's working hardest to get it. Right. But like there's no trust factor in that story. I know um, it takes it takes the control out of the restaurateur and you know and yeah. fairly distributing. I actually believe, I don't believe that this is a function of people not willing to spend it. I do believe that there is a, some conditioned human nature here in the same way. Like I might stupidly buy, and I've said this a million times, I might stupidly buy an airline ticket that when we were able to fly, that would make me, that get me leave the airport at 6am because it's $50 cheaper when I look on JetBlue's website, right? Versus taking the 915 fight, which is like perfectly you know, reasonable time to leave, but I didn't want to spend an extra hundred bucks, right? But then when I wake up at four o'clock in the morning, I have to get a taxi to go to the train, go to the airport. I'm like, why did I do that to myself? Mm -hmm. Right? We yeah. are, we have like, there is some price conditioning when we see numbers, we make decisions that are not logical. It's more like emotional math. That's a long way for me to get to my, my buzzword, emotional math. <laughs> emotional emotional math. math. No, we see it too. I mean, we see it in, in clothing. And, yeah, and exactly. Want right? to... You see it all the time, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. People want to know why our products are so expensive and we have to explain that because we pay fair wages and we give health insurance to our employees and our seamstresses. And, and know, there's 25 don't... people involved with getting <laughs> your shirt on your back. It's a, it, it really does break down to a lot of people being treated fairly and it's the same same with food that's right what are you guys using the covid surcharge like 10 percent? no 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 but you know i think this is also i mean to go back i think there's a functionality here that like corporations and there have been businesses who have gotten very wealthy off taking taking money and paying people very little right like that's the story of capitalism is that we pay our employees as little as possible and try and make as much money as possible and there's not really a category for someone like you for you guys and or you know if i want to throw myself in there that where you're saying well we're actually going to try and use this money like this right we're going to actually try and put it back in to the people who actually have done the work so it is of value for you to give us money here Right? right? You're really just looking for the lowest price apron. Well, you're just going to go to Walmart anyway. You know, like. Yep. The old capitalist story. Um, I mean, it's, yeah, it's tough to change like the culture. And I also saw, um, I think on maybe Instagram, I don't know, that you guys were starting like an equity and inclusion committee um, oh. internally. Can you tell us a little bit about what that work has looked like? 
Yeah, it's been really exciting and really great. You know, I we started it, we have put a certain dollar amount aside to have the group figure out where they want to spend the money or how they want to spend the money. Um, and I tried to stay out of it so I wouldn't lead the direction of it in the beginning and let everybody, you know, kind of like figure out their ideas. And there's been some really great ones come up from the team. And it's a smattering of people from all the different businesses. Um, Liz from HR here is leading and it's been really great. I think I'm excited to see, I mean, I'm someone who's in this place where I'm always like excited to see what like year two and year three already look like. Like I'm already done with this year and I'm already, I'm already like, oh, maybe we can grow that pool of money to $50,000. And maybe like we actually have a lending program for anyone or a grant program for anyone who's employed here to use, you know, in $2,000 chunks to help them, you know, move or pay rent or get childcare or whatever they need it for, right? Like it could be a no questions asked idea. So, but it's been great. It's almost like a, an internal, I, mean, I don't wanna say it's a business cause it doesn't make money, but like an internal way of how do we take care of ourselves with money from these businesses collectively. So are you just putting a certain, how are you actually, how are you funding this initiative? Are you yeah, taking? I just, I just put a certain amount of money and a fund for them for this year. And then I said I would fund it, you know, basically in perpetuity for now, but like, you know, and we ideally, if there was enough good programs coming out of it, I am totally open to growing that dollar amount. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. It totally makes sense. I mean, it's like, that's like a, you know, I think that's also a hard thing for people to say, like, I need to factor this into a line item in my PNL every year is like, there should be budget put towards us for employees. I mean, it's, totally. it's, a, it's a great initiative. Totally. But like, you know, they might use it to as Spanish language, you know, I mean, English as a second language programs here you know like there's lots of different ways that they can use the money and th the point is that the group whoever signs up will get to decide where how the money is used right it'd be easier for me to say like oh i want to offer spanish classes i want to offer spanish and english classes to everyone maybe that's not a really good use of the money right like let's let the that's what's so exciting to me it's like let the people who are line employees who are working here you know make the decision of how the money should be actually utilized. So how does that work? You basically put out like an open call to all of the businesses and say, come together as a group and decide, you know, meet and decide how to use this. Yeah, effectively. And then, Maybe. yeah. And also, you know, I mean, all those sort of like, I mean, part of what this year has been so far is also figuring out what those, like, I don't want to call them rules, but like, how do we actually like, maneuver through it, right? Like when someone shows up for the first six, but then doesn't show up for the next six, you know, because it's a long-term project, right? We're making decisions for what it looks like in six to eight months. Um, like how do you make those timelines? We've actually got, we actually spent a little bit of money and got a, um, a company to kind of help us organize everyone's timeline and get everybody on the same structure. Cause it's, you know, it, it's a lot of wrangling structurally you know and there can be a lot of meanderings of conversations right 
Yeah. So there you go. You have another business. I'm like, yeah, can add it's, that to it's actually, it's actually <laughs> super interesting, but it's something that I'm trying not to actively manage, <laughs> which is different than the other businesses. Is that hard for you? You're like, I got to step back from this one. No, I just don't show up. That's how I do it. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I think you have enough going on where it's okay to not show up for us for, for some things. But I will, I will be honest, it is hard for me not to get in there and do it. I will say that. Sit on my hands is not a normal, is not a normal thought. We're all evolving in 2020. What, yeah. is, what is your outlook for like the future of restaurants and dining? Like after, you know, post-COVID, are you, do you see like expanding businesses and tell us, you know, forward thinking? Yeah, I mean, I'm optimistic. Obviously, I believe still people are going to come together and eat together um i mean for me like the metrics of whether i open more businesses again are much more personal and or much more related to the people here who are working here right so i don't so the answer is yes i would probably open more and i probably will and i could also really say like, maybe this is, maybe this is good. And then maybe we'll start to scale back down so that I just have one and I can just work at one, you know? I'm all for a lifestyle business. I'm like, it's okay to like, yeah. no, this is good. I'm tapped out. Um, I mean, it's not that I'm tapped out. It's just that I'd like to own, you know, I don't, I want to, I want to be able to work in my businesses. And so I just want to make sure that that, matches what I do on a daily basis and it doesn't grow to a place that I'm unhappy. Like I'm not planning on growing this thing and maybe selling it, right? Mm -hmm. Like I'm not trying to make a big restaurant group or anything like that. So it's like, I really want to make sure what I end up owning is actually what I want and not something that is just based on the hamster wheel pushing me down the road. Right. Right. The amount of times I've been offered, like, do you want this restaurant in Penn Station? Do you want this restaurant in Times Square? Do you want this one in... Rockefeller Center, like all these developers who are always pushing other things for people. And I'm not saying that that is right or wrong for those operators. I just am very clear whether it's right or wrong for me as a human being and, and for my team who work with me currently. I think that's why the authenticity with your restaurants and your group is so apparent to anybody who patronizes them. It makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I mean, I'm just not chasing like oh, I got a great deal from Amex to open in the ground floor of their business and I'm going to like make a restaurant so that they can have all their lunch meetings. You know, it's like <laughs> only if that really is my thing, you know? Sounds like it. a great idea. Let's do it, huh? <laughs> we this till it? Yeah. No. We're in. We're in. We're in. Um, awesome. Well, been a really interesting conversation and i appreciate you sharing with us um we always yeah. like to sh we always like to try to shout out new openings or friends that have reopened maybe is there any or any place that you've been going recently that you're just really loving anybody coming to mind i mean unfortunately at this moment i really try and you know obviously frequent my own businesses but I also have been trying to really not be social so that I don't become part of the problem. Mm -hmm. um, I definitely eat pizza at Industria 
quite often because it's right around the corner from Stranger, my wine store. Stranger Wine. So like that's our Sunday night pizza place. Oh yeah. So you know, Nick worked with me for a long time at Renard, and Massimo's become a great friend. So I definitely hang there a lot. Or hang with those guys. Very delicious. A shout out. Um, the only other shout out is I mentioned Nate earlier in the show, but Gertie, um, our friend Nate, who's been on the show what before, he has teamed up with pastry chef Melissa Weller. And yeah. they will be turning out bagels and her sticky buns and all sorts of awesome things. So we're excited to see that pair up. So that started today, I believe, was your first official day. Is that a um, pop-up or that's going to be long term? No, permanent. Yeah. Oh, really? Interesting. I believe so, which is really exciting. Our oldest daughter has just become a bagel aficionado, so that's great. <laughs> she just had to add on to the white things that she eats, the white carby things. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd like to know what she thinks of the bagels. I want to. I want a full update. Well, yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Thanks again, Andrew, for sharing with us. Uh, we'll put a wrap up of the show today on tillatnyc.com. Uh, we'll also send one to your email inbox. So if you're not on our list to make sure everyone gets on our list. Um, you guys have lots of followers or lots of handles. I imagine. Is there one or two that can guide people to your restaurants, Andrew? I guess diner NYC. Okay. You know, I'm not going to make it name all 10. Um, and then for us, we can, you can find us at we are opening soon and at till at NYC and we'll catch you next time. Thanks again, Andrew. Opening soon is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter, enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org, and connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You could also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. And thanks for listening.